everyone, welcome to the latest edition of the BICOM webinar. My name is Roni Gazit, and I'm based um, with the BICOM team in London, despite my accent. And today I'm delighted to be joined, we're all delighted to be joined by Brigadier General Michael Herzog. Though I'm sure our esteemed guest needs no introduction, I'll give just some brief background before we dive into the content. Uh, General Herzog is a member of the BICOM Advisory Board and is also the Israel-based International Fellow of the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. Over the last decade, General Herzog has held senior positions in the Office of Israel's Ministers of Defense, he acted as the liaison between the defense minister, the IDF, the prime minister's office, the intelligence community, and the defense establishment at large. And beyond that, he's also participated in most, um, correct me if I'm wrong, most if not all of Israel's negotiations with Palestinians, Jordanians, and Syrians. Um, ranging from the Y Plantation Summit to the Camp David Summit to Taba negotiations to Annapolis to the John Kerry talks and kind of everything in between. So I can't think of a better guest to join us today to talk about what is happening right now with Iran and the talks about the JCPOA. So I will hand, hand it over to the general for some brief introductory remarks. And then our audience is of course welcome to virtually raise their hand if, I, if they would like to ask a question or to type it in the Q&A. Uh, box. So with that, uh, General, please, please go ahead. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Ronnie, and hello, everybody. I'm very happy uh, to be on this call. Uh, I will start with some brief opening remarks about uh, Iran, the prospects and uh, implications of reviving the uh, nuclear deal. Uh, as we've seen, uh, talks are going on in uh, Vienna, and the parties report uh, that they have uh, covered a lot of ground and are quite close to an agreement. So it appears as if we are nearing an agreement. And uh, this raises a lot of questions and concerns uh, in the region, both here in Israel and in the region uh, as a whole. Uh, it appears, you know, looking at it from the outside, as if the, the United States and its European allies are quite eager to revive the deal. Iran is playing uh, hard to get uh, in this respect, and it has been applying uh, its own version of maximum pressure, counter pressure uh, on the United States and Europeans including some unprecedented measures like uh, enriching to 60%, which is one grade lower than military grade enrichment, enriching to 20%, uh, resuming enrichment at the uh, Fordo enrichment facility, which is a fortified facility, uh, developing what's called the uranium metal, which is usually used in warheads, and uh, effectively blinding the International Atomic Energy Agency, the IAEA, um, as a measure to, to apply pressure to lift sanctions. Now, uh, there, there is a whole discussion here in the region about what would be the implications of a renewed deal, assuming it's by and large the same as the original uh, 2015 uh, JCPOA. I think from Israeli point of view and also from the point of view of uh, uh, quite a few actors in the region, and I, I, I talk to many uh, here in the region about this and uh, also conduct some dialogues with, with the Gulf states and some other, uh, other Arab uh, actors here in the region. The main concern is, and, and there are many concerns about the Renew Deal, the main concern is that uh, uh, once uh, the parties go back to the deal, then uh, as time elapses and so-called sunsets kick in and the limitations on Iranian, uh, on the Iranian nuclear program are being lifted, then uh, at one point, not too far, 
especially uh, after the watershed, uh, uh, the watershed the date of uh, 2031, Iran will be legitimized as a nuclear threshold state because it will be allowed to enrich uranium at uh, levels higher than low enrich uranium on an industrial scale with the most advanced centrifuges, which means that breakout time, the time required to acquire sufficient uh, military-grade uh, fissile material would shrink uh, to a month, then to uh, days, and ultimately uh, it may be impossible to stop Iran from crossing that threshold. And if Iran becomes a legitimized nuclear threshold state, then uh, it might uh, well trigger a nuclear arms uh, race in, in the region and destabilize the region further, much more than it is uh, today. There's also the question of the relationship between uh, a nuclear deal and Iran's uh, behavior in the region. Uh, there were those who advocated for including Iran's regional behavior in the uh, nuclear negotiation themselves, including also missiles. Uh, that is not the Israeli position because uh, Israelis are focused on the nuclear issue per se is a more sensitive issue. They don't want to overload it with other issues and going for a grand, grand bargain, which will result in nothing. And also there is concern about a potential uh, trade-off, namely that you may give some concession to Iran in the nuclear issues in return from uh, for regional uh, aspects and so on and so forth. So, uh, but the big concern is that uh, once the deal is, uh, is signed or finalized uh, and Iran has more money to spend on the region, uh, it could embolden its uh, ambitious uh, behavior in the region. Uh, the concern is that uh, the United States and Europeans, its European allies, might uh, repeat the Obama administration's behavior whereby because they wanted not to undermine the nuclear deal, they essentially gave Iran a pass on its uh, regional uh, activities. This is a concern for many in the region who are, uh, talk about it among themselves. Then there is a question of uh, what follows a nuclear deal. The Biden administration says that uh, once a deal is in place, it will push for a longer and a stronger deal, implying that the current one is not long enough and not strong enough, which I think is correct. But then the question is, how do you get there? I have yet to encounter one person in my country or in the region that believes that this is doable. Nobody believes that you can motivate Iran when it's, once it's back in the deal and sanctions are lifted to go beyond that. Iran will say we are within our, we, we are in compliance. Uh, there's no reason to apply sanctions on us and uh, it will refuse to move. And it's very difficult to see how you move Iran from a, a renewed JCPOA to a longer and a stronger deal. The United States contends that there will still be hundreds of sanctions in place. That's what Blinken said recently. And that uh, Iran will uh, desperately need to get back into the uh, world trade system so that it might soften its position and agree to uh, a longer and stronger uh, deal. But uh, I doubt it and uh, most people in our region doubt it uh, as well. Ultimately, as the parties near uh, a renewed agreement, there are several questions that uh, are raised here. And uh, the question is, will these elements be factored in uh, into the renewed agreement or how will they be factored in? First of all, the fact that the uh, 2015 baseline for an agreement uh, shifted since then because Iran since 2015 developed know-how in terms of uh, more advanced centrifuges, uh, missiles, and, and other elements of its uh, nuclear program. So when you talk about going back to the original deal, you don't go back to the exact same baseline because that baseline shifted. And the question is, how do you factor that in? For example, if the parties agree 
that uh, they should go back to uh, a, a breakout time of one year, which was the baseline in 2015. How do you calculate that exactly with the advanced centrifuges and the know-how that Iran developed uh, in this uh, respect? The second big issue is the relations between the JCPOA and Iran's commitment under the NPT. Uh, the safeguard agreement it has with the International Atomic Energy Agency, inspections, so on, I, uh, so on. I mentioned the fact that Iran is uh, essentially has been blinding inspection since February, um, and the, the, the major powers negotiating with Iran are currently swallowing it because they are uh, hopeful that Iran will return to the deal and then this will be settled. But there are open cases between Iran and the IAEA as pertain, pertaining to potential military dimensions of the Iranian program. Uh, the IAEA said that uh, Iran has not provided credible answers to questions about uh, undeclared activities in four undeclared sites. These are uh, open cases. And the question is, how do you factor it in uh, to a new agreement? You just move on as if nothing happened. Do you try to settle it once there is a deal? These are open uh, questions. And finally, how do you operationalize longer and stronger? How exactly do you uh, propose uh, together given the assumption which we all share that Iran will uh, resist that? So the bottom line, uh, we're at a critical junction. We have to see what exactly a new deal means. Uh, I would recommend that in dealing with Iran, the powers negotiating with Iran would adopt a comprehensive strategy vis-a-vis -vis Iran that looks into its nuclear activities, regional activities, and other types of activities which are of concern to regional actors and international actors. Ultimately, the policy for each of these cases may be differential, but the outlook, the strategy should be a comprehensive one. So let me stop here and uh, give room to a Q&A. Thank you so much, General, for those, for those comprehensive remarks. As I mentioned, if you have a question, please raise your hand if you'd like to ask it or type it into the question uh, box. But let me just get started kind of picking up uh, on, on something you spoke about. And we've seen um, just, just you know, yesterday that the IDF chief of staff has landed in DC for talks with uh, the Biden administration regarding the ongoing negotiations in, in Vienna. So from your perspective, I mean, we know that Israel prefers that the US does not return to the deal, but assuming that we are heading in that direction, what impact does Israel want to have on the content of the deal? And from Israel's perspective, what are the most important factors that they want to have influence on or see in a deal that the US might return to? So as you mentioned, uh, the Israeli government uh, would have preferred uh, the U.S. not to return to the deal, and that uh, pertains to the previous government and to the current government. I think there's a broad consensus here in Israel about this. But there is also an assumption that it may be impossible to stop the U.S. and its European allies from going back to the deal. People understand that this is uh, moving in that direction. And the question is uh, whether or not you can impact uh, some of the elements of the deal. And this uh, goes back to what I just presented, those questions that uh, uh, have to be factored into a deal. So for example, I mentioned the issue of the shifting of the baseline from 2015, because Iran did develop know-how in terms of uh, sophisticated centrifuges, for example and even introduced uh, enrichment with new centrifuges, IR2, IR4, IR6, which are much more, uh, much faster than the original ones permitted under the JCPOA. Uh, today, Iran can, can enrich at a, at a pace which is three to five times faster than uh, the original pace. And if they introduce even more advanced centrifuges like uh, IR8, 9, then uh, it could uh, at one point be as, as fast as 50 times more 
than uh, the original. This is very significant. So if the parties agree, and I know that this came up in the negotiations in Vienna, that Iran should go back to a breakout time for of one year. Let me remind you, breakout time is a time required uh, for Iran to acquire one bomb's worth of military grade fissile material. Before the JCPOA in 2015, it was around two months. The deal extended it to one year. Now it shrunk to around three months. And uh, assuming the idea is to stretch it back to one year, uh, how exactly do you calculate it? I'll give you one example. One of the questions that are being asked and raised in the negotiation room is what uh, does Iran do with the more advanced centrifuges it has already introduced? Does it destroy them and ship them out? Does it mothball them? Because if uh, it is about mothballing, then we're not back to uh, one year because Iran can easily then uh, uh, you know, fix the situation back and start enriching with them. Uh, it was an assumption of the international community that uh, if Iran uh, decides to violate the JCPOA and uh, resume enrichment at Fordo, uh, which was forbidden under JCPOA, it will take them a long time. Yet they resume enrichment in no time, very quickly. So uh, the, the, there's a big question of how exactly you calculate, uh, you calculate uh, one year's uh, breakout time. Or take the other questions I posed here of the uh, relations between Iran's commitments under the JCPOA and Iran's commitments under the NPT. Um, the uh, nuclear archive of Iran, which was seized by Israel in 2018, reveals uh, or sheds light on uh, undeclared sites and undeclared activities suspected of, uh, of a military in nature, what's called PMD, possible military dimensions. These are open files. And according to uh, uh, the summary of the nuclear archive, there are at least 17 Iranian sites who have not been visit visited and monitored by the IAEA. So how exactly do you factor that in? Do you uh, tell the Iranians uh, when we don't go back to the deal until you uh, close the open files with the IAEA, or do you sign the deal uh, or go back to the deal and then tell the Iranians, uh, we, uh, if you uh, really want to, uh, you know, uh, honor your commitments, now you have to close those files and uh, that could serve as a leverage towards a longer and stronger deal. Uh, these are open questions. How do you deal with the issue of Iranian missiles, which are the delivery system for a nuclear weapon? These were not included in the JCPOA. They were covered by uh, a weak UN Security Council resolution 2231 which was not mandatory. It was a term kind of defined in, in rather weak uh, uh, terms. It is set to expire in 2023 in Iran. Anyway, did not comply uh, with the terms of uh, this uh, resolution. So how do you deal with that question? Do you include it in the nuclear negotiations? Do you renew a UN Security Council resolution, but with more teeth? Uh, these are the things that uh, regional actors and first and more foremost Israel uh, would like to discuss uh, with the Americans and the Europeans before they sign the deal. Just to come right up to date, how do you see uh, the change of leadership, the new presidency uh, in Iran changing things, if at all in the short or longer term? And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about uh, how playing in the background to all you've been describing is the China factor. Um, Rouhani and Zarif, Zarif particularly, made actually uh, ever so often a, a big hint about they had the backing of China. And so in the longer term, that, 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 that was going to be a guarantee for the long, longevity of their more hardline policies. 
Well, let me start first with the, the new president, Ibrahim Raisi. Um, I, I think the main um, you know, way to look at it is uh, in the Iranian domestic context, not in the nuclear context. Uh, I think the idea of the uh, supreme leader in uh, pushing Raisi to the presidency uh, is uh, probably, I speculate here, but I assume he thinks about it, is to groom him as a potential successor, because uh, Khamenei is 81 years old. Uh, I don't know how long he's going to be there. And he would like to uh, ensure continuity of the Islamic revolution. Or I see is a perfect person uh, to succeed uh, Khamenei. Um, how would this impact the nuclear, uh, the nuclear negotiations and nuclear deal? Uh, I'm not 100% sure. For, to begin with, Raisi never dealt with foreign policy issues, and uh, he will have to as, as president, of course. Uh, we all know that he's a hardliner. I don't think his election signifies that Iran will, will kind of uh, run away from a deal. Uh, more likely, and this is what I hear, they would prefer the signing of a renewed deal somewhere in between the elections and the um, his actually his actually assumption of office in sometime in August, so that uh, the the outgoing government will sign it and he will not have to be responsible, but he could cash in later on. But uh, obviously, in terms of uh, implementation and things like that, and Iran's uh, Iranian behavior in the region. I think uh, this is a victory for the hardliners, so it will definitely translate itself in Iranian behavior, even though we all know that uh, decisions are ultimately made by the Supreme Leader. He calls a shot also in the nuclear deal. It's not that the president makes uh, ultimate uh, decisions there. On China, uh, I think that uh, the main issue with China is that it helps Iran evade sanctions. And uh, we've seen uh, Iran under very heavy pressure of sanctions in recent years since uh, Trump uh, left the, exited the, the deal and applied the so-called maximum pressure. And we've seen China, especially over the last year, uh, help Iran evade sanctions uh, by taking in Iranian oil and so on. The fact is that uh, over a year ago, a year and a half ago, I think Iranian exports of oil were estimated at a few hundred thousand barrels a day. And now they are estimated at one and a half million barrels a day, even though sanctions are still in place. And I think the main reason behind that is, uh, is China helping uh, Iran. So probably when we talk about China backing us, they mean or they want to say that uh, with Chinese support they can uh, they can handle sanctions they're not afraid by sanctions they have learned to live with sanctions and so on I wouldn't overstate this I think they are still under very heavy pressure but some of the pressure was eased with uh, Chinese help on the topic of, of sanctions specifically um, with, with China helping them, you know, one, one of the narratives that we've seen come out from Iran, and especially the Supreme Leader has said this, is that their goal is to neutralize the sanctions rather than completely remove them. So do you think that enough has been done in terms of the maximum pressure and applying these sanctions to actually get Iran back into compliance with the deal or that there needs to be more? Iran certainly has come under tremendous pressure in recent years, and I think uh, this exacted the real toll. Uh, all economic indicators uh, show that, and Iran is not in a good place uh, economically because of, uh, because of sanctions. However, uh, at least over the last uh, year and a half maybe, uh, there was less enforcement of uh, the sanctions, especially in the last year. And uh, as I said, the Iranians learn to live with it. It's not that they are in a good place, but uh, they somehow managed to learn to live with it, cushion some of the negative impacts. Uh, and it is important for them to show that they can uh, 
survive sanctions uh, and, and go on and that the West uh, failed in uh, breaking their willpower and so on. Assuming uh, there is a deal signed now and uh, most of the sanctions are lifted or the heavier sanctions are lifted, uh, I think that will uh, certainly ease things for Iran and uh, will probably harden their uh, position on some of the open issues in the region or on missiles or even on the nuclear issue uh, because they assume that it will not be easy for the United States and interna its international allies to reapply sanctions. It's not such a, an easy uh, wheel that you can just turn uh, like a speedboat. It's much heavier than that. And uh, if they go back to the JCPOA and they say to the international community, we are in full compliance, you have no right applying more sanctions on us, and they feel that uh, they might have a point and it won't be that easy for the United States to apply sanctions. I was told by some uh, people in the Biden administration that uh, when Trump uh, decided to apply unilateral sanctions on Iran without um, international cooperation, they were skeptical that this will work. And they learned that it worked. So their conclusion was that Biden could do that too. But I think that the context of uh, applying the sanctions when Iran will be in, back into compliance uh, will make it hard for them politically to, uh, to make the decision and then enforce it. So shifting our attention out to uh, the other side of the, the Persian Gulf and the, the Arab countries there, it, do you see a complete agreement between Israel and its Arab partners, specifically the ones uh, that they signed uh, normalization deals with about the nuclear threat emerging from Iran and also its, its more regional reach, uh, specifically with its, with its proxies? across the, the region? Well, there is a broad agreement between Israel and uh, the major Gulf states about uh, the Iranian uh, ambitions, Iranian threat, both in the nuclear and in the regional fields. Uh, definitely Gulf states are concerned about uh, the potential implications of a renewed nuclear deal, and especially the uh, prospects for Iranian Iran becoming a nuclear threshold state, as I explained earlier. Uh, it doesn't mean that, uh, that, that Israel and the Gulf states agree on uh, the practical uh, policies required in, all, in order to address that. Uh, the Gulf state will definitely not want to be seen as if they are building a military coalition with Israel. They, all of them shy away from uh, from even the image of uh, such a coalition. Um, they are, uh, I would say, um, they took note or in their mind, the United States is uh, in the process of retreating from the region. Uh, and we've just seen the US uh, make a decision about pulling out some more forces and assets from uh, the Middle East. And they understand that uh, without the US, they have to uh, develop closer cooperation with Israel. However, they um, prefer that Israel will be fighting uh, an Iran deal, it will be at the front while they, uh, they are uh, in the back. Uh, some of them would like the original uh, activities of Iran to be uh, incorporated into the nuclear negotiations. Uh, that is not the Israeli position, as I explained. And in any case, where I do see agreement between Israel and at least uh, the UAE and Saudi Arabia is that when it comes to missiles, drones, and uh, Iran's regional activities, uh, we have to be somehow at the table, not frontally you know facing Iran but, but since we are we live in the region we are stakeholders we are impacted directly by what Iran does here so if there's talk with Iran about uh, its regional activities uh, for example uh, while negotiating a longer and stronger deal we have to be there and our voice has to be heard 
because it's about us and it's about our future. On this, uh, there's broad agreement between them. So you mentioned these reports about the U.S. pulling out some troops and assets from, from the region. Can you flush out in some more detail what risks and challenges this poses for Israel if the U.S. reduces its presence in areas like Iraq and then Syria? Well, the point about uh, Iranian military, uh, the American military deployment and forces is... Uh, is more about uh, what it projects. It projects uh, American commitment to uh, regional stability. It projects American commitment to its allies. Uh, it projects deterrence. These are the things that regional allies uh, uh, see in the US deployment. I mean, uh, certainly Israel doesn't need US forces to uh, protect it. Some of the regional uh, actors uh, do want to see some American forces uh, uh, be because they feel that without the United States, they will be exposed. So the point is that if the US pulls out, uh, what the message coming out or emerging out of such a measure is that the, US, the, the Middle East is a low priority for the United States. The US is retreating or reducing its uh, military foothold from the region. Uh, allies can rely less on the United States. The uh, void might be filled by negative forces like Iran or like uh, Russia uh, or like other uh, negative forces. And this is a major concern for, uh, for regional actors. Uh, I'll just give you one example. At the time when Trump decided to pull out all forces from uh, Syria, uh, I mean, the American forces in Syria didn't really make a difference in military terms. They did not decide the situation on the ground. But their very presence had a major impact on Iran, for example, in, uh, in disrupting the so-called land corridor stretching from Iran towards the Mediterranean, the American presence in, uh, in Tanaf near the triangular borders of, uh, of Syria, Iraq, and uh, Jordan uh, had and still has a major deterrent impact, even though we're talking about small number of forces. Uh, where it may be different is in Iraq, because there, there is uh, some kind of, uh, there, there is a very strong Iranian push uh, to gain and maintain dominance, and the Americans stand in the way. And the Iranians declare that it is, it is their goal uh, to drive the United States out of Iraq. And if that happens, uh, they will declare a major victory. It will be a tailwind for them and will help them, uh, you know, maintain a dominant role in Iraq or gain a dominance more than they have today. And already today, they have a huge impact in, in that country. So I think uh, the symbolism of, uh, symbolism of US retreat is something that uh, is of concern uh, to the US regional allies. I believe that they are willing to shoulder more of the burden and to do it also through cooperation uh, between them. And today with Israel becoming a part of CENTCOM, not only moving from UCOM to CENTCOM, it opens many avenues for regional cooperation, including vis-a-vis -vis Iran. I'm not talking about the military coalition, but there are many things that could be done. But uh, the parties, even the strong ones like Israel, would still like to see uh, some modicum of American pres military presence in the region with all the deterrent messages that come with it. So circling back to something that we briefly touched on, the, the Abraham Accords, do, do you think that the momentum of, of that from last year is, is starting to wave? I mean, we saw that, you know, the, the former, uh, Israel's former foreign minister, um, you know, talked about holding discussions and calls with his counterparts with, with many Middle Eastern countries, but we've not seen anyone else make the move to normalize as much as there's been discussion about it. Do you think that the U.S. might in a way be a key factor in, in having any future agreements come, come to light? Uh, yes, you're right. I think momentum stalled, unfortunately. 
Uh, we've had four countries uh, normalize relations uh, with Israel, uh, two in the Gulf, plus Sudan and Morocco. And uh, I think that's a very important uh, move, and I would like to see more countries move in that direction. Uh, the US is critical in that sense because uh, many of these countries, uh, I mean, those countries that normalized relations with Israel did it uh, not uh, because of the United States, because, but because of uh, their own uh, interests in the region uh, and, and their view that uh, given the challenges that this region faces, the cooperation with Israel is a good thing. Israel is here to stay. It's a strong country, uh, projects deterrence and can cooperate and help them in many, many ways and mostly civilian ways. So they had their motivation, but the US, US added a very important layer that uh, pushed them in that direction because some of the gains they, they were hoping to get were from the United States. And if the United States is not actively engaged, the whole process is much slower. It will continue, I believe, but uh, in a much slower pace. <clears throat> I understand from talking to uh, the people in the US administration that uh, the administration understands the importance of, uh, of this element, would like to appoint someone to help promote additional uh, normalization moves in the region. Uh, they haven't done so yet. They are still organizing themselves. But once they do, I hope that uh, uh, they will continue uh, that push. And I think that push is also very important when you talk about uh, Iran, because I think Israeli Arab normalization is a blow to Iran. It should be continued also in that respect. So now looking at um, perhaps the, the Israeli government, we're just about a week into a, a new government. Do you see this government's priorities in terms of Israel's security threats changing at all, perhaps when it comes to Gaza, Iran, Hezbollah? That, that well, I don't think that uh, the priorities of this government are going to change in terms of the major national security challenges. Uh, challenge number one is uh, uh, Iran in the nuclear field uh, because of the concerns I explained earlier, the prospects of Iran becoming a nuclear threshold state and the feeling that if that happens, there will be a nuclear arms race in the region. Iran could not be stopped from crossing the threshold. And then Iranian regional activities impacting Israel, especially the major attempt by Iran to build Syria into a formidable military front facing Israel. And more specifically, the so-called precision project, trying to turn a sizable portion of Hezbollah's arsenal of uh, rockets into highly accurate rockets, which would pose a strategic threat uh, to Israel. Those are the number one um, priorities of uh, Israel, also the new government. In terms of uh, you know immediate focus, there's an immediate focus on Gaza because we just had the war and ceasefire is fragile and things may uh, escalate again. And uh, the government has to put its mind into stabilizing the situation. But uh, long-term strategically, the main focus is on Iran, Iran, Iran. Now, looking at perhaps a bit specifically more on this Palestinian arena, especially given your, your years of expertise working on it, do you think that there's going to be any kind of change in this government's policy? And, and perhaps maybe even to what extent you can, can you talk about uh, Prime Minister Naftali Bennett's uh, approach or thinking when it comes to this? I mean, one of the things that, that it, it's, it's kind of been rumored is that he believes in this notion that Micha Goodman put out there about diminishing the conflict. Do you think we're we're going to see anything different from from this government compared to what we've seen from the last twelve years under Netanyahu? Uh, this is a unique, unprecedented government because it's a broad coalition, uh, including parties from right to left and a soft Islamist party. We have a, like a Muslim, soft Muslim Brotherhood party legitimate here in Israel, in our Knesset. So it's a very unique government. 
but because it's such a broad and diversified uh, coalition, I think it'll be unable to make big moves on the Israeli-Palestinian issue, certainly political moves, negotiations, or political agreements, but it may be open to uh, moves on the ground to reduce friction, uh, to increase Palestinian autonomy, to uh, allow for a real development of the Palestinian economy, uh, to stabilize uh, Gaza, uh, things like that, uh, the government might be open. Uh, I understand that also for the US administration, this issue is not a very high priority. And they understand that uh, this is not the time to push for uh, bilateral negotiations, they will yield no results. Uh, so they're also focused on the more, uh, I would say, stabilizing things on the ground and keeping the window open for potential uh, future political uh, developments. It is true that um, uh, this uh, prime minister uh, has been uh, impacted by, by this uh, theme of uh, shrinking the conflict. Uh, historically, here in Israel, uh, we used to talk about either solving the conflict or managing the conflict. And uh, we tried to solve the conflict more than once. We failed, I've been in all of these attempts. And then more and more people said, okay, we can't solve it, let's manage it. But there is now a third way of thinking offered here in the Israeli public discourse, which is trying to shrink the conflict. And uh, which is, as I explained earlier, reducing friction on the ground, include, uh, increasing Palestinian autonomy, and uh, focusing more on the bottom-up issues, which may open avenues for a future political solution. I don't believe that this government is up for a, a real political solution at the time. By the way, I don't believe that the Palestinian leadership is up for it as well. I don't think Abu Mazen can do any of this. Um, but hopefully we can at least uh, stabilize situation and keep the window open for future political developments. Speaking of the uh, Palestinian political arena, um, we're, we're, you know, about a month after, you know, the rising escalations and the tensions along the Gaza border, which we know began with um, a lot of the controversy with can with the cancellation of the Palestinian elections. Can you talk a little bit about what impact that had on how the events developed over the last couple of weeks and if we should expect to see any type of uh, Palestinian election process in the coming months? Yeah. And, and well, even I think the cancellation, sorry. I was just going to say, and perhaps if you can also speak to whether it was, you know, Hamas that actually came out looking much stronger from this whole from this whole saga between the cancellation of the elections and the uh, and the war. Well, I think that uh, the cancellation of the elections by Mahmoud Abbas Abu Mazen had a huge impact on the turn of events and the ultimate escalation in uh, Gaza. There were no elections in the Palestinian Authority for uh, 15 years, the last parliamentary elections were held in 2006, then Hamas won. And uh, there, there were a lot, of, he created a lot of expectation in the Palestinian street. Uh, finally, we're going to have elections. And why did he cancel elections? For a very simple reason, because he, uh, he understood that Fatah is not going to win, that the Fatah is split into at least uh, three uh, major lists. There was the official Fatah list uh, uh, introduced by Abu Mazen. There was a list of Mawan Barghouti and Nasser Kudwa, the former foreign minister of the Palestinian Authority, uh, which was quite popular. There was a list of uh, Mohammed Dahlan and some other lists challenging uh, Fatah. Uh, and there was a Hamas list, one Hamas list, not three like Fatah, but one. And it was evident that uh, once uh, elections are held, Fatah will not emerge the number one uh, list. And uh, once he understood that, he, uh, he decided to use the excuse of Israel not responding to him on uh, whether or not there'll be free elections in Jerusalem in order to cancel uh, the election. But I think there was a fall of expectation in the Palestinian street. 
Hamas felt that it was about to score a victory and that he took victory away from their hands. And then when uh, things began to heat up in Jerusalem and there was an eruption in Jerusalem for reasons unrelated to all of this, uh, Hamas saw an opportunity in, uh, in the weakness of the PA and Abu Mazen, in the cancellation of elections uh, on the excuse of Jerusalem and in the eruption of Jerusalem to say, okay, we, not you, are defending uh, Jerusalem. Uh, we defend the Palestinian cause. Uh, you just talk about Jerusalem. We defend it with our missiles and with our willingness to sacrifice. And it was part of their uh, calculation, which surprised many, including in Israel, by the way. The fact that they launched this initiative, they fired at Jerusalem. It was their initiative. They started it. And it was for political reasons that have a lot to do with their relations with the PA, because they aspire to seize a mantle of leadership in the Palestinian society and Palestinian authority, and they see an opportunity with Abu Mazen, the way he uh, behaves. So following the war, when we uh, do a balance of what happened and summarize the events, there is a military balance, but also a hugely important balance in terms of the war of perception. So militarily, Hamas was beaten. That's, that's clear and they know it. But in terms of uh, the war of perception, they scored some uh, successes. They now appear in the mind of uh, Palestinians and many in the regions as victorious. Uh, they, uh, a recent opinion poll in the PA indicated that 60 to 70% of the Palestinians uh, believe that Hamas emerged victorious. They are more popular now than, uh, than Abu Mazen. And, uh, and people believe, many people believe that they are more relevant to their issue than Abu Mazen, he's marginalized. So uh, that uh, poor decision to call for elections and then cancel them definitely played a role uh, in where we are today. So perhaps we can we can end with with a couple of just questions on on Gaza and where and where we go next, unless anyone uh, has would like to raise something else. But looking at what where we go from here between you know what Israel and the international community want to see in Gaza is it you know is it possible for them to effectively strengthen the Palestinian Authority there um, and well you know does Abbas want even to return to Gaza and, and what terms might he demand or is this just entirely not a possibility given exactly what what you've laid out in terms of their popularity following this latest escalation? Uh, this is a tough policy question. Essentially, we are back to the same uh, strategic theme of uh, uh, policy of, uh, I would say, uh, containment and deterrence vis-a-vis -vis Hamas in Gaza, because Israel doesn't want to conquer the Gaza Strip. And the prospects of the PA taking over the Strip from Hamas are nil right now. So we are left with uh, Hamas as the address in Gaza and containing it and making sure or trying to make sure that it will not re rebuild its military capabilities because nobody wants another round in three, four years. Now let's go back to 2014. For, following uh, the round, the big round there, uh, what's called protective edge, uh, there was an agreement between Israel, the PA and the UN to build the so-called GRM, Gaza Reconstruction Mechanism, whereby the flow of construction materials and funds would be ensured. At the same time, there will be proper monitoring on the ground to make sure that Hamas does not use the materials and the funds in order to rearm itself. That mechanism obviously failed because what we saw in the last round is uh, Hamas and Jihad Islami with many more rockets, uh, longer range rockets, uh, heavier payload, and uh, all, most of them based on uh, indigenous production lines that they created in Gaza with the help of Iran. Why did it fail? Because the United Nations was not strong enough to uh, lead this. There were not enough uh, monitoring on the ground. There were supposed to be hundreds. There were ultimately, I think, 50 people, most of them local uh, Gazans and not uh, 
people from the outside because uh, the PA was not a, constructor, a constructive actor. They blocked a lot of uh, the projects that even Israel approved because of their political rivalry with Hamas and they exacerbated things in 2017 by cutting their funding to Gaza by about 25%. Uh, and there was also a lot of breaches of uh, the, um, uh, the security monitoring there. Um, and some of it uh, with, uh, with is even, I would say, passive uh, complicity of Israel because uh, things did get to Gaza without proper monitoring through the Egyptian border. And there were cases where there was information about Hamas uh, putting its hands on certain uh, trucks and uh, the flow of uh, construction material was, was not stopped after that. So I think you have to rebuild this whole mechanism. I would like the United States to play a more active role in, in it. Egypt is already playing a leading role and I think that's a good development, but you need the United States to be an active uh, partner as well in this. Uh, I think you need new uh, rules uh, in terms of uh, the security monitoring, what goes in, what doesn't go in, uh, dual use material, and so on and so forth, uh, many more uh, monitors. I think uh, we should not rely solely on Qatari money. Qatar is a highly problematic actor, supportive of uh, Islamist parties and uh, very problematic. I would like to see uh, more international regional funds from the Gulf as well. And that could be done through an international fund. Money should not go through the PA, but should, through the UN mechanism. I don't think that we should give the PA veto power over projects because uh, I don't think they will uh, use that veto power properly. What I would like to see is that all taxes on goods going into Gaza go to the PA and then the PA in, its, in turn increases the funding that it gives to Gaza under international uh, monitoring. All what I said doesn't guarantee 100% that Hamas will not be able to rearm, but at least we can, uh, we can buy more time, we can do a much better job uh, in, in ensuring that we can do a better job in providing humanitarian and economic solutions to Gaza. And, uh, and ultimately, I hope that uh, in due time, there will be also, there will be political solutions right now. I don't see them in the offing. Well, thank you very much for that really comprehensive overview for uh, these very pressing issues. We're very grateful for your time. Uh, thank you to everyone that joined us this afternoon. And we look forward to having you for one of these again soon. So thank you very much again, General Herzog. I greatly appreciate it. Thank you very much, Ronnie. Thank you.